You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the second part of a two-part series detailing the history and human rights violations in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. If you haven't listened to part one, go back, do that. This episode will be here when you get back. I hope as you listen, you're reminded that history is not something that is behind us. It is something that informs the lives we live today. And it is something we are a part of every second that passes by. Although this episode is not as graphic as the previous iteration, it is heartbreaking nonetheless. Please prepare yourself for mentions of violence, genocide, and sexual violence. I'm Andre, and this is the Redacted History Podcast. When we last left off, the Congo Free State was taken from Leopold II after a media campaign exposed the atrocities he committed in the region for the sake of profit. You would think that now that the Congo Free State was out from under Leopold's clutches, things would get better. And although the same type of brutality wasn't always occurring, life under the Belgian government wasn't exactly a walk in the park for the Congolese people. When the Belgian government stepped in, they did very little to actually empower the native population in the newly named Belgian Congo. The Congolese were now being paid for their work, but they were still being drastically underpaid. Most of the jobs they were allowed to have were in the mines, on plantations for resources such as rubber and cotton, or in other similar labor sectors. The military was also an option, but Congolese people were very limited in how high in the ranks they could climb. There weren't going to be any Congolese doctors, lawyers, or politicians under this current model. Education for the Congolese were minimal access to an education into adulthood was rare. This was intentional. The Belgian government was not setting up the Congolese people for independence. It was setting them up to be compliant, happy Catholic workers while they reaped the benefits from the natural resources. And if anyone did step out of line, Belgium had retained the force publique and they weren't afraid to use them. The area was also largely segregated. Black residents had curfews, limited movement, and white residents were given priority in basically everything. Even within the language, black residents were addressed using the formal French pronoun tu, whereas white residents were addressed with the more respectful vous. This reminds me so much of what was happening in the United States at the time. Across the Atlantic, black people in America were working as sharecroppers for pennies on the dollar, segregated and mistreated. It was slavery, just with a different name. During World War II, uranium was added to the list of resources that were now required from the Congo. And the world wouldn't stop demanding uranium from the Congo until 2004. The Congo would end up supplying the majority of the uranium used in the two bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The uranium found in that area would be the largest supply discovered yet and the United States spun back for more uranium at the start of the Cold War. 
By 1951, the U.S. had extracted 2,792 tons of uranium from the Belgian Congo. Mining was difficult work that was often done by force. In the Redacted History episode about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we discussed the damaging effects of radioactive materials, everything from cancer to birth defects. No protective gear whatsoever was provided to the people performing this work. Water was contaminated. Everyday activities like taking a drink of water or a bath were now lethal. Even the air was polluted with clouds of uranium-sprinkled dust. Food sources were contaminated. But with all this, unfortunately, there was no data on the exact impact the uranium had on this population of people. The same level of research simply wasn't done compared to the studies conducted on the United States and Japanese citizens. After nearly 50 years of living this way, change was on the horizon, and one man by the name of Patrice Lumumba put everything on the line to free his people. Before we dive into the next part, there are some key players we have to outline in order to avoid any confusion. Patrice Lumumba was born in 1925 under the Belgian Congo. Patrice started as a postal worker, but he was well-read, charismatic, and passionate about his political work. In 1958, he and several others established the Congo National Movement, or the MNC, which was the first political party founded by and for the Congolese. Joseph Kasavubu was also born in the Belgian Congo in 1915. His father was an entrepreneur, and he received a relatively decent education. In fact, he worked in accounting and finances for the Belgian government and was over time promoted to the highest position available. He would later become the head of the Alliance of Bakongo. Lastly, Mobutu Sese Seko. Mobutu was born in 1930 and grew up in the Belgian Congo as well. Growing up like many other children, he attended Catholic school until he was kicked out for breaking the rules. He was kind of a class clown. Seven years in the military was his punishment. He would have been about 19 at the time. While in the military, he slowly became more and more the model citizen. He spoke French and carried himself in a way that the Belgian government hoped all their African residents would carry themselves. He loved reading about Winston Churchill and Machiavelli, particularly the book The Prince. If you're unfamiliar with this text, people who seek power tend to be really drawn to it. Several historical villains have read and studied the book, including, but not limited to, Hitler, who was said to have kept a copy by his bedside. Mobutu shifted away from the military and got into journalism, and from there he became acquainted with Patrice Lumumba. In fact, you can even see them photographed together. He ended up joining the MNC and was a huge asset within the organization. At the time, Patrice had no idea that his friend would later be his biggest betrayer. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. These movements were gaining momentum, and naturally, there was pushback from the Belgian government. On January 4, 1959, a large crowd showed up at the local YMCA. Fun fact, the YMCA has been around a long time, nearly 180 years. People arrived due to confusion surrounding an event that the Alliance of Bakongo was supposed to have. The Alliance of Bakongo decided to have this assembly after a demonstration held by the MNC, which was very successful the week prior. The assembly was not authorized, but happened nonetheless. 
the alliance of Bakongo members, including Kasavubu, tried to get people to leave. Then the police showed up and things escalated quickly. A sea of people by the thousands also joined the assembly from a nearby soccer game. It was upwards of 20,000 people. The situation was completely out of control, and a riot and looting went on for hours, nearly two days. All of the frustration people were feeling bubbled over. The citizens were overworked, underpaid, mistreated. People often wonder why people get angry and sometimes choose to riot. Why smash things and loot? It won't make things any better, they say. This behavior is often a symptom of a deeper feeling of so much frustration. Like in the movies when someone is angry and throws their own dinner plate or wine glass across the room. No one questions why someone would destroy their own wine glass. We just understand the feeling behind the action. In the process of settling the crowd, hundreds of people, including Kasavubu, were arrested and hundreds more were injured or killed. The event was alarming to the Belgian government, to say the least. They had no idea people were feeling this strongly. It didn't help that countries like Ghana in 1957 had gained their independence. The riots caught their attention, and they had no choice but to make some changes. The Belgian government decided to allow elections in the Congo. The MNC was skeptical. Their concern was that the Belgian government would put a candidate in the running that they wanted in power and use shady means to get that person in office. People continued to protest, and in October of 1959, there was another riot resulting in the death of 30 people. This time, Patrice Lumumba was arrested and imprisoned for inciting a riot. But all of the fighting and the struggle would soon pay off. Belgium agreed to allow elections and set a date of June 30th, 1960. The Belgian Congo would officially become independent. Hi, I'm Michael Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we enjoy today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, starting with the events leading up to the war, including a look at the French and Indian War and pre-war disputes. We then go through the war itself and eventually reach the founding of a new nation based on principles of democratic government. Along the way, there are lots of great stories of both selfishness and sacrifice, some unbelievable human achievements, and some all-too-familiar examples of greed, self-dealing, and betrayal. Please subscribe for free to the American Revolution podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. During this election, Lumumba won and became prime minister, and Kasavubu became the president. Mobutu Sese Seko would become chief of staff. Unfortunately, the Independence Day ceremony would mark the beginning of the end for Patrice Lumumba. The Belgian king at the time, King Baudouin, delivered a speech, and it was offensive to say the least. He used words like genius and courage in reference to Leopold II. It was condescending, and he genuinely downplayed the damage that Leopold and Belgium had done to the people of the Congo. Lumumba decided he also wanted to say a few words. In his speech, he thanked everyone who helped them get to this moment. He spoke with pride and hope for the future and his desire for unity and a cordial relationship with Belgium. And he reminded everyone of exactly what the Congolese people endured as a result of colonization. He talked about segregation, brutality, poverty, and forced labor, 
He told the truth, but this speech put an even bigger target on his back. There was also another problem. When you examine the elections, although the MNC won the most seats in the National Assembly, they only had 33 seats won, about 23% of the total seats. No one party had a majority, which would have been 69 seats. This meant that even if they did win, it did not necessarily mean that everyone was in support or even on the same page. And on top of all of this, after less than a month in this position, the force publique broke out in a mutiny. They were deeply unhappy with the still-present white leadership and their compensation. The region of Katanga was attempting to secede and take their resources with them, and the unity that Patrice Lumumba had hoped for wasn't coming together. Violence was breaking out across color lines and ideologies. Belgium decided to step in and sent troops to the area. Lumumba, of course, wanted these troops gone, seeing as he didn't ask for them in the first place. So, he turned to the UN for help. The UN agreed to help, but the assistance was not enough for the scale of the problem. He looked west and asked the United States for additional assistance, and they were of no use. Mind you, the United States had been using resources from the Congo for years at this point. When they denied him, he looked to the east and asked the Soviet Union for assistance, and they agreed to assist Patrice Lumumba, seeing this relationship as an opportunity for resources. And this was the final straw. Communism? Absolutely not. Allegedly, the United States, Belgium, and France all helped conspire to have Patrice Lumumba taken out. With the help of Kasavubu and Mobutu, Lumumba was removed from his position. Kasavubu denounced him and Mobutu helped capture him. Many historians also believe Mobutu acted as an informant to help bring Patrice down. Lumumba was seized and he along with two other supporters were taken deep into the forest and executed, shot one by one. The officers buried them in a shallow grave. They developed a cover-up story for the murder, but many people suspect something sinister had occurred. To hide any evidence, the officers dismembered the bodies and dissolved them in sulfuric acid. The only part of Patrice Lumumba that remained would resurface in 2016. It was a gold tooth that an officer had kept as a trophy. It was returned to the family, and on June 30, 2022, Patrice Lumumba was finally given a proper ceremony and laid to rest. So, with Patrice Lumumba out of the way, Kasavubu and Mobutu were both pleased. Mobutu was promoted to the highest position of Major General. Mobutu was now more than ever prepared to move into place and seize even more power. After Lumumba's assassination, there were massive uprisings and continued unrest. People were devastated about the murder and political turmoil. The Congo could not hold down a prime minister, but Mobutu continued to thrive. After successfully suppressing these rebellions, Mobutu had also won the support of the United States. They continued to keep a positive relationship with Mobutu. In 1963, Mobutu went to the United States. Notes regarding the government's impression of him reads as follows. Quote, Although Mobutu had many weaknesses, the chief of station believed the United States should continue to bet on him, as there was no alternative with similar power. Unquote. And for context, chief of station here means CIA. They are a high-ranking CIA official who oversees operations in foreign relations. So the question becomes, bet on him for what? 
The United States would maintain its presence in the Congo, sending aid to suppress any rebellions. Stanleyville had succumbed to a rebel organization called Simba. Hundreds of foreigners were being rounded up and held against their will. This included some American citizens. The hostages were able to be released in an operation led by Belgian and American troops. Planes soared through the skies and soldiers parachuted to the scene below. They were able to recover the hostages, but this didn't really improve the current situation. All of the unrest kept dragging on until Mobutu took control. With the help of the CIA, Mobutu, on November 25, 1965, overthrew Kasavubu and put himself in charge. Kasavubu was placed under house arrest and anyone else who opposed Mobutu was punished, sometimes publicly, to make an example of them. One example of this was a very public hanging he conducted involving four former ministers. People quickly learned to fear him. With Mobutu now in power, things were about to get a whole lot more complicated for the Republic of Congo. Briefly, things seemed like they were going to be on the up and up, but greed would overpower any meaningful changes in the country. The Congo was rich in copper, and Mobutu was instrumental in the mining and exporting of this resource, which helped bring much-needed funds into the economy. He poured resources into sports. Under his guidance, the Congo became the first country in sub-Saharan Africa to play in the World Cup. They even hosted the iconic Rumble in the Jungle fight between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. He also renamed the country Zaire and changed the names of several cities that had previously held Western names. For example, Leopoldville was now Kinshasa. He was rebranding his image to appear more concerned with returning the Congo to its roots. Very pro-African, if you will. And even with this change, the West still loved him. He was helping them fight communism and supplying resources, so diplomatic relationships with these nations were strong. But aside from these initiatives, he banned political parties and crushed any opposition to his rule. He was very chummy with the West and often maintained their interests, even to the detriment of his people. Mobutu made lots of empty promises to the people of Zaire. The copper market collapsed due to the Vietnam War. Copper was used to make bullets and supply was shrinking fast. This collapse cost Zaire everything. He was notorious for taking care of himself and his buddies first. Money was no object when it came to keeping those who would help him maintain his power happy, even if it had to skim a little off the top from the country he was running, or take out loans. In one incident, he took over several local businesses and took whatever money he could from them before letting them fail. And even when money dried up, he just kept spending. Mobutu's reign would last 30 years from 1965 to 1997. For perspective, he was around for these United States presidents. Lyndon B. Johnson, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter. Ronald Reagan referred to Mobutu as a voice of good sense and goodwill. Mobutu was also around for George Bush Sr. and a part of Bill Clinton's term. But by the time the Cold War was coming to an end, the United States didn't have as much use for Zaire as before. But in Zaire, the people were still struggling. And as in most cases, where there is poverty, there is crime, looting, violent protests for change. Intimidation by Mobutu's government continued to increase and his corruption was becoming more and more apparent. There were several demonstrations demanding that he step down. He refused to let go of the grip that he had on the current office. He even attempted to make himself president for life. And things were about to only get worse. In 1994, a neighboring country, Rwanda, was experiencing an ongoing conflict of its own. 
the Hutu and Tutsi tribes were at odds. After the Hutu's president's plane was shot down, a massive genocide erupted. Tutsis were blamed for the assassination. The then extremist Hutu Rwandan government killed 800,000 Tutsi people and supporters over about 100 days. In relation to Zaire, the conflict in Rwanda caused people to become displaced. Once the Tutsi began to take control of the country with the Rwandan Patriotic Front storming the area under Paul Kagame. It is estimated that over 2 million Hutu people fled into Zaire. Kagame wanted to hold the Hutu people accountable for what they had done even though they fled and reached out to Laurent Desiree Kabila, who was a native of the Congo. Kagame wanted his help to kill the Hutu people that had fled. Kabila was open to the opportunity because he wanted help overthrowing Mobutu. Together, they formed the Alliance for Democratic Liberation, or the AFDL. The refugee camp was attacked and troops marched deeper into Zaire and took the capital city. Kabila is going to be a key player for the rest of this story, so let's establish some background about him. Laurent Desiree Kabila was born in 1939. This was also during the Belgian occupation. However, he took a slightly different route than Mobutu. Seeing the control that the Belgian population had over his people, he began to get involved in politics at the age of 21. He was also a strong supporter of Patrice Lumumba. He was in opposition to Mobutu and as such had to be suppressed. In the meantime, he formed his own army. During his eventual exile, he would grow his army with the assistance of Che Guevara of Cuba, who played a huge role in the Cuban Revolution. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Guevara wasn't very impressed with Kabila's leadership and felt he lacked discipline. Kabila received funding for this operation by illegally trading ivory and gold. China and Cuba also helped provide funding for his goals. Later, the same army would help overthrow Mobutu. And this brings us back to the original point in our story. Kabila now had overthrown the man he couldn't wait to destroy. Being forced to flee, Mobutu did try to come to some sort of compromise. Mind you, this is now 1997. Before being forced to flee, Mobutu did try to come to some sort of compromise. Nelson Mandela, yes, that Nelson Mandela, and his vice president tried to step in and had a meeting with the two men. As you probably guessed, there was no real resolution. A second meetup was scheduled, but Kabila didn't even show up. In the end, Mobutu was defeated by Kabila. On May 17, 1997, Kabila was officially in charge. Mobutu was forced to flee the country and would die in Morocco just a few months later due to prostate cancer. When he died, his net worth was around $5 billion. 
Today, his lavish palace where he spoiled himself and his supporters is in ruins. His legacy will forever be tarnished and he earned himself a reputation as an unsavory character and a terrible leader. But in terms of leadership, Kabila was not much better. Some may argue worse. He really wasn't equipped to lead an entire country, though his military prowess may have been superior to Mobutu's. That's a lot different than running an entire country, though. Reports say he was a heavy drinker. To make matters worse, when he took control, he expelled thousands of Rwandans who were refugees after Rwanda was partially responsible for helping him gain the position that he had that day. Kabila's allies quickly turned to enemies, and Rwanda made an attempt to take the capital city again. Kabila teamed up with Zimbabwe, Angola, and Namibia in order to combat Uganda, Rwanda, and Burundi, who had also teamed up with each other. This was the start of what would be known as Africa's First World War. The Lusaka Peace Agreement was reached and all parties were encouraged to stop fighting. But unfortunately, this treaty did nothing to keep things peaceful between these countries. Soon after the agreement, Katanga became a source of disagreement between the now renamed Democratic Republic of Congo, or the DRC, and Rwanda. Gold and silver were prevalent in the areas, as well as cobalt, which we use today. The violence was unbelievable. It is estimated that this conflict resulted in 5.4 million deaths. It is declared that at the time, that was the deadliest conflict since World War II. Kabila had to watch his back. He had several bodyguards that were literally teenagers. Instead of hanging out with friends, they were serving in government as protection for Kabila. One of these bodyguards walked into his office one evening, shot him several times, and fled. It wouldn't be until two days later that the government announced that Kabila had died. They were scrambling. No one anticipated that Kabila would be assassinated. The UN rolled out one of the largest peacekeeping forces to date in order to keep the peace during this time of uncertainty. His son, Joseph Kabila, assumed office in 2001, only about a week after his father's assassination. In 2002, Joseph attempted to end the conflict by implementing the 2002 peace agreement. And as you probably guessed, it wasn't as effective as he hoped for. Joseph wasn't really the people's choice. The Congolese people wanted an election. Finally, in 2006, elections were held. At first, neither Kabila nor his opponent, then Vice President Jean-Pierre Bemba, had a majority of the votes. There were literally shootouts over the election. Diplomats tried to step in and keep the peace, but they ended up right in the line of fire. Each candidate was terrified that the other was trying to have the other killed. They couldn't even have a debate. In the end, and probably to no one's surprise, Joseph Kabila ended up winning the election and will remain president until 2019. He is believed to have been re-elected under very shady circumstances. Many feared that he would be a lot like his father. Many more would argue he was worse. He was frequently accused of voter suppression, torturing his rivals, and corruption. During his time, the Congolese military was accused of horrific sex crimes. He governed the Congo similarly to Mobutu. He opened the country up to trade with other nations and kept some for himself. His net worth is reported to be in the billions as well. Naturally, he was pressured to step down in 2019, and in 2021, he was facing accusations of embezzlement. Felix Chesakedi is currently the president of the Congo. He was not Kabila's pick. His family was exiled by Mobutu when Chesakedi was growing up. He's made a lot of promises for change and is currently up for re-election, but I suppose only time will tell. Because of the resources that the Congo has, there are several countries in the West that would love to get their hands on them. 
And when one country doesn't have control over those resources, the fears set in that another country will. There is also internal conflict to establish control over these resources that are profitable. Today, plenty of Western companies use the cobalt and coltan found in that area. China has also taken an interest in the DRC, and in 2007, they offered Kabila $9 billion to go towards infrastructure in exchange for rights to minerals in the area. And you may have heard a little bit about this lately. People have been comparing what China is doing in Africa to what some of the other Western powers have done in Africa in the past. And to tell you the truth, there's a lot of nuance to both sides of the argument. Infrastructure sounds great, but the concern is that it could lead to future exploitation. And then, of course, with China moving in, other Western countries are going to be concerned about being pushed out of the resource-rich DRC. Today, much like the rubber of the past, the resources that are found in the Congo are seen as necessary in order to move the world into the future. Whose world exactly is debatable because right now it's definitely not the people of the DRC. If you were to look up the largest cobalt mines in the world, 8 out of 10 of them are in the Democratic Republic of Congo. 64% of coltan is also found in the area. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that this is a multi-billion, yes, billion dollar industry. Glencorp PLC, which is currently the world's largest cobalt mining company, is valued at over $50 billion. Harvesting rubber has been replaced with harvesting cobalt and coltan. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Cobalt is used to help prevent rechargeable batteries from catching fire. Coltan can have elements tantalum and niobium extracted from it. The niobium is used to create electronic capacitors that help power the devices. Tantalum can be transformed and used as thin wire. So, while we are in the United States enjoying our iPhones and laptops, PlayStations and TVs, over half of the people in the DRC do not have access to clean drinking water. And in 2020, 46% of the population was younger than the age of 15. Sexual assault and violence is also rampant. According to the United Nations Global Database on Violence Against Women, 51% of ever-partnered women have experienced physical and or sexual intimate partner violence, with 37% of those women having experienced this violence in the last 12 months. Many more rapes occur at the hands of the rebel group M23. This organization's aim is resources by any means, especially violence. They are a byproduct of the previous conflicts in the area. It's hard to say for sure because child labor is often kept under wraps, but at least 15% of the miners of cobalt and coltan are children. And since 1996, when the need for these resources began to rise, it is estimated that 6 million people have died due to civil unrest in the DRC. Please understand that these lives aren't lost simply because the Congolese just can't get it together. They are a result of the instability created in the nation by the West, who meddled in the country over and over and over again in a country that they should never have been in the first place. And even now, very little has been done to actually spark changes and improve conditions in the DRC. Only the occasional apology is offered, but no one is sorry enough to stop using the Congo and other nations' resources to get rich. It's interesting when you think about how harvesting rubber involved climbing into those tall trees and harvesting cobalt involves going deep into the ground. Some of these tunnels, improperly monitored, are prone to flooding and collapses. Children are put to work and these areas that could be thriving are decimated by the mining industry. People die all the time in the mines. At least 2,000 people a year die mining these materials alone. And if you remember that at least 15% of miners are children, that's totaling over 40,000 who are much more likely to die in the mines. 
This implies that conservatively, 300 children a year die in the mines. This is about one child a day. Large mining is often seen as the biggest culprit of these atrocities. But that isn't always the case. Smaller mines, known as ASMs, which are artisanal and small-scale mining, are not always legitimate or regulated, nor do they have the proper tools or equipment in some cases. On the Glencorp website, there's a statement that addresses modern slavery. It highlights the challenges with some of the ASM artisanal and small-scale mining resources. It reads as follows. We recognize that artisanal and small-scale mining is a source of employment and income generation in many countries, and we support helping legitimate ASM be as responsible as possible. The sector is largely unmechanized and informal in nature, so it often presents significant health, safety, and human rights risks. A key issue is the participation of children in the sector. In the DRC, ASM is a source of employment for around 2 million people. The other problem is that these tech and car companies don't always get their materials directly from the Congo. They get the materials from a supplier. This supplier is just one of many points on the supply chain. It's difficult to guarantee that somewhere down the line of the supply chain that the cobalt and coltan came from a mine that practiced safe and humane working conditions. What if some of the materials came from a legitimate source and others did not? Who's all sorting this out? Many of these companies rely on the integrity of their supplier, and if a supplier wants to make money, of course they won't disclose the whole truth and compromise a sale. And when these companies find out violations have occurred, they address it then. But at that point, the damage has already happened. Audits are conducted at these sites semi-annually. Annually? Rarely? It all just depends. The truth is there is no way to know, and there's a decent enough chance that the materials we walk around with every day in our pockets were mined by someone working $2 a day, or even worse, a child. How can you help the Democratic Republic of Congo? The easiest thing is to spread the word. Right now, so much is happening in the world. But what is happening in the DRC isn't getting nearly the same level of media attention. Cobalt and coltan are used for batteries and electric cars, game systems, tablets, cell phones, and much more. Instead of buying the newest thing just for the sake of having the newest thing, try holding on to what you have until it absolutely needs to be replaced. And did you know that in some cases, keeping your current car can actually be better for the environment than getting a new one just because it's electric? These small things help drive down the demand for these minerals, at least until we can guarantee they are sourced responsibly. It also puts pressure on these giant corporations to do more and do better. Vapes also require cobalt to function, so if you're looking for a reason to quit, this would be a great cause to get behind. Donate if you can. I know it's difficult to know which organizations can be trusted, but causes like Doctors Without Borders help provide aid to the people going down in those mine shafts every day. It may not seem like much just to have discussions about what is happening in the DRC or share a post. But remember, when the Congo was in the hands of Leopold II, it was the people who raised awareness about these issues before social media even existed. It was the people who gained Congo its independence, the people who applied pressure to the Belgian government and the Western powers. And I believe that right now, we are living through a time when the people can help the Democratic Republic of Congo once again and usher in real progress and a real chance at freedom. Until next time, this episode was so beautifully written and researched by Jordan Howard. It was narrated and edited by Andre White. If you like the Redacted History Podcast, please, please, please consider leaving a rating and a review. And more importantly, subscribe. 
Go on over to the Redacted History YouTube channel. There's a whole bunch of new content there. And go over to the Patreon while you're at it. All of this is linked in the description below. And more importantly, there are resources and informative sources for you to get active and informed on what is going on in the DRC. And also, there are resources on how you can help.